Last weekend, we looked at the psalm most frequently quoted in the New Testament, Psalm 22, which whispers the name of Jesus as the forsaken. Now, this weekend, we're moving to the best known and best loved psalm in the Bible, Psalm 23, which whispers the name of Jesus as the Good Shepherd. Now, most everyone is familiar with the Shepherd Psalm, which Abraham Lincoln often meditated on to help dispel his bouts with depression. And George W. Bush publicly referenced to comfort a grieving nation as he spoke standing in the rubble of the collapsed World Trade Center towers. The words in the brief six verses of Psalm 23 have offered more comfort, have calmed more fears, have encouraged more hearts than any other words ever written. However, since we so often hear it quoted at funerals, I have noticed that when I visit people in the hospital, they prefer that I read some other scripture passage than Psalm 23. They wonder if I might be preparing them for the inevitable. <laughs> they think that I may know something they don't know. I've often wondered what it is that makes this psalm such a source of strength to people who are either facing or are in the process of recovering from a personal crisis. I think I, think I have the answer in a single word, and that single word is confidence. I read confidence into every line of this psalm. Now, confidence is defined as, first, freedom from doubt. Secondly, as a feeling of trust. And thirdly, a state of hopefulness that events will be favorable. And I see all three of these components in Psalm 23. And it seems to me that a confident faith is one of the big differences between the person who has made Jesus Christ the Lord of his life, her life, and the person who has never truly made Jesus their Lord. Now understand, I'm not talking this morning about overconfidence, which borders on arrogance, and I'm not talking about self-confidence, because self-confidence can be elusive and it can be fragile. I'm talking about a deeper, more secure kind of confidence, Christ's confidence, confidence in the Good Shepherd. I think it's expressed in the words of the Apostle Paul, who wrote this from prison, if you can imagine. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. He's imprisoned, and he writes these words of incredible confidence. And Paul also wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, when he was facing execution. He's facing execution, and he writes, I know whom I've believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. I hear supernatural confidence in those words, so I want to get into the text of Psalm 23 today. Hopefully come away, all of us come away from this with a renewed confidence in our good shepherd to face whatever life or death issues are out there in the future for us. Well, in verse 1, I think we see the confidence of provision. In verse 1, perhaps the best-known line in the psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in 
want. Can you take that in today? The Lord is your personal shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. You have nothing about which to be anxious or discontent. It's interesting that David here uses the name Yahweh for God here. He does not use Eloi. He does not use Adonai, but he uses Yahweh. Yahweh is the name by which God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. Translated, it is, I am that I am. He is the self-existent one. He is the one whose existence does not depend on anything or anyone else. He's the one who caused everything to be the eternal one, the name, the, the one whose name literally means, I have always been, I am, I always will be with you. Kind of like that worship chorus we just sang, never once did you leave us on our own. Second Timothy chapter 6, verse 16 describes him this way, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. That sounds like the Yahweh that he's referring to here in line one of this psalm. Do you realize that ordinary Israelites considered the name Yahweh too holy to be spoken. In fact, it was so revered that it was only pronounced once a year on the Day of Atonement by the high priest. And if, and if the name needed to be written, the scribes would take a bath before they wrote it, and then they would destroy the pen after writing his name. Well, we've gone a long way in the wrong direction as far as reverencing the name of God in the 21st century, haven't we? You can hear the name of Jesus Christ punctuated with the vilest possible references. And yet, Yahweh is the name that David chooses in the opening verse of Psalm 23. He's omnipotent, and He is ours. He is powerful, and He is personal. He is majestic, and He is mine. I love the image of Yahweh as a sensitive shepherd. Listen, He is King of kings and Lord of lords who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, but he's also Isaiah 40, 11. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers, gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Put that together today. Friends, if we can get this today, we're going to solve the problem that some of us have with anxiety. Today, People worry not only about things that could happen, they worry about things that are never going to happen. One day a man went to work and everyone could tell he was as worried as a centipede with athlete's foot. And one of his co-workers asked him, what are you so concerned about? He said, well, a few years back I went home one evening, my wife was whistling tea for two, and shortly after that we had twins. Then a few months later, she watched the movie, The Three Musketeers. Shortly after that, we had triplets. Last night, I went home. She was reading the book, Birth of a Nation. He said, I'm, I'm worried. I'm worried. Well, he had nothing to worry about. <laughs> I recently heard about a guy who was so whacked out with anxiety that he decided to actually hire someone to do his worrying for him, and he found a man who would take the job for $100,000 a year. He was hired as the worrier. 
And after accepting the job, the first question he asked his new boss is, where are you going to get the money to pay my $100,000 a year salary? To which his new boss replied, that's your worry, not mine. <laughs> well, you know, sheep, sheep do not have problems with anxiety. I, I've, I've never heard of a sheep with an ulcer. They live in confidence because they're under the care of the shepherd. And our personal shepherd is the Lord God who is our provider, about whom we read in Philippians 4.19. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. It sounds a lot like the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. That's the confidence of provision. And then there's the confidence of restoration, verses 2 and the first part of verse 3. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He lead, leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Now, I want you to notice it says here, the shepherd makes me lie down. Josephus, a first century scholar, has written that sometimes the shepherd would slow the flock down and even initiate periods of forced rest. In this verse, you can also see the link between physical rest and a restored soul. If you lie down in green pastures, if you take a walk beside quiet waters, it can have a renewing effect on your spirit. I, I recently read in a medical study that it reported as many as 70 million Americans do not get enough sleep. And many of these insomniacs who spend an estimated half billion dollars a year on sleeping pills testify that their sleeplessness is a result of stress. And so sometimes R&R, &R, rest and relaxation, is the key to relieving our stress and restoring our confidence. Folks, I've, I've had some personal experience with this. Back in 1981, we had just come through a difficult pregnancy, and so all three of our children were quite young. And I was in my third year as president of the Bible College. Some of you remember... The economy was in the tank, there were lines at the gas pumps, the interest rates were 16%. Enrollment at private Christian colleges was in decline, gift income was down. We had just entered into a limited partnership to restructure our debt and soon after we signed the papers, our limited partner declared bankruptcy and so instead of a $700,000 of savings and interest, we incurred an additional $300,000 of indebtedness. That's a $1 million hit in a crisis economy. We were also in the early stages of a merger with a Christian college in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and we knew that that would add another $400,000 to our debt. And besides that, one of our more assertive and vocal trustees at the college was convinced that I was too young and too inexperienced to lead the college through the demanding year ahead. So, so I was functioning as a bill collector, as a real estate agent, as an attorney, and as a financial planner, and I didn't feel very much like the spiritual leader of a Christian college. And I remember one morning standing in the shower for a very long time thinking, this is not what I committed my life to as a 16-year-old, I needed to have my soul restored. Now, 
I was walking in obedience to the Lord. I was walking in daily devotion to the Lord, so I couldn't figure out why I felt so drained, so stressed. And our wise trustees, minus one, recognized what I needed. They told me to take my family, go away for three weeks to someplace quiet and not even call in. And a friend of the college graciously offered us his place on Table Rock Lake, and we went there. And after three weeks, we returned. And I was not the same man. My soul was restored in the process of having to lie down in green pastures and walking beside still waters. My confidence was renewed, and I have never visited that place of emotional and physical and vocational fatigue since. I've looked back on that experience as the Good Shepherd making me lie down so He could restore my soul. Clovis Chapel said the most spiritual thing a tired Christian can do is sleep. But not now. We've got to move on. <laughs> move on to consider the confidence of direction. So in the latter part of verse 3, he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You know, it's not unusual for people to live without a sense of direction, to live without a sense of purpose. There's a reason why Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, was a global bestseller because that's where a lot of people live, without a sense of direction, without a sense of purpose. They're on autopilot. They get up in the morning. They go to work. They come back drop into bed at night to start the cycle over the next day. They lack direction, like the man who had a bumper sticker on the back of his car that read, Don't follow me, I'm lost too. Well, in extreme cases, people who live without direction can become convinced that there's no longer any reason to live. You live with like that over a sustained period of time, and you lo lose your zeal for living. You lose your sense of vitality. A man in... Dallas, Texas weighed over 500 pounds. His story in the press recorded his own sad words. He said, I'm eating myself into the grave and I'm doing it intentionally. My life has no meaning or purpose and I figure I might as well get from it whatever pleasure I can and for me that's three big meals a day. Some people who live without any sense of purpose or direction can even seem surprised when things go well for them. A psychologist received a postcard from one of his patients vacationing in Rome, and the postcard said, I'm having a terrific time. I wish you were here to help me understand why. Well, that's, that's extreme. It was true in Jesus' day. It's true in our day. Look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. When He saw the crowds, He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, people lack direction. That is a snapshot of our society today. These people were wandering and lost. They needed someone to guide them in the paths of righteousness, in the right paths. And Peter picks up on the same metaphor, this sheep-shepherd metaphor, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25. He says, to first century Christians, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So Peter tells these first century Christ followers they lack direction in their lives until they return to Jesus Christ, the good 
shepherd. One of the things that attracted me to the faith as a young man was seeing the people that had it all together. And they were people that had this component in their lives, this sense of direction, this sense of purpose. The word he uses for paths here, lead me in the paths of righteousness, this uh, refers to a well-worn, well-defined trail. That's what the word indicates. It's another subtle hint at how dumb sheep can be. Even when the path is perfectly obvious, the path is perfectly clear, the sheep will still stray. God longs to lead us in the paths of righteousness, and most of us know the path we should take. We know the right path, but for some reason we stray. Our own selfishness, our own sinfulness, our own waywardness leads us astray. We're weak. If we submit to the Good Shepherd, though, if we submit to Him, His loving Lordship, He will lead us in the right paths. And He does it for His name's sake because His character is revealed in us when we walk down the paths of righteousness. Well, we've got to move on to the confidence of protection. That's in verses 4 and 5. Even though... I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Now this is where David's prayer, David's testimony reaches its pinnacle with the words, I will fear no evil. Now two of David's greatest evils are mentioned in this passage. Death and his enemies. And for David, they're inextricably linked. Think about it. He was just a teenager when he confronted a nine and a half foot tall giant covered in armor from head to toe. And there wasn't a single Israeli soldier who would answer Goliath's challenge to fight to the death one on one. Not, not one would step up, but David shows no fear. Supremely confident of God's protection. He said, The Lord delivered me from a lion. The Lord delivered me from a bear. He'll deliver me from this Philistine. And you know the story. David took him down in round one with his sling. Later in David's life, he became the object of King Saul's jealousy because of his popularity with the people. And on two different occasions, Saul hurls a spear at him, both, both times trying to kill him. But David dodged a spear and barely escaped. David was constantly threatened by the Philistines. They wanted to get David's head on the end of one of their spears. And then later in David's life, he had to flee Jerusalem to escape death at the hand of his own son, Absalom. So for David, death and his enemies were inextricably linked. But he said, I will fear no evil. So what about it? Are you afraid, are you afraid to die? Well, some would say, absolutely not. I don't think about it. I have confidence in the Lord. I am ready to go. That's good. Others would, would perhaps say, well, I'm not terrified of death, but I have to admit I'm a, I'm a little bit afraid. But many people are very much afraid to die. And the fear of death is always listed among the top three phobias that lurk in the back of people's minds. And, and the Bible speaks of of people 
who are held in lifelong bondage to the fear of death. Think about that. People who are held in lifelong bondage to the fear of death. In a moment of rare transparency, financial guru Donald Trump said in Time magazine, the only thing that bothers me is I don't know where I'm going when I die. Woody Allen said, I'm not afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. William Randolph Hearst would not allow death to be discussed in his presence. Billionaire Howard Hughes died without a will because he didn't confront his own mortality. And I, I once heard that NFL football great John Madden would take a three-day train ride to avoid taking a four-hour plane flight because of his fear of death. And some people refuse to go to a doctor out of fear of a life-threatening diagnosis. Some people literally will not go into a funeral home. They will not visit a cemetery. They won't go into a hospital because it is a reminder of our mortality. In his book, The Denial of Death, Ernest Becker writes these words, We human beings arrange our lives around ignoring, avoiding, and suppressing the most irrefutable fact in the whole world, which is, I'm going to die. You are going to die. We don't like the word death. We talk about passing on, going to the other side, going on ahead, kicking the bucket, buying the farm, pushing up daisies, sleeping with the fishes. <laughs> and that being said, I think this would be a really great morning for us all to come to terms with the reality of our mortality. James 4.14 says, What is your life? You are like a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So here's your life in comparison to eternity. Bingo, there you are. My son used this illustration last weekend. I thought it was so good. He said it's Febreze. So from now on, every time you spray Febreze, you're going to think about dying. That's not a good thing. <laughs> he made the point that it doesn't matter whether you're, you die at 40 or 60. Because here's the deal. If you die at 40, this is your life. If you die at 80, this is your life. There it is. I bring you good news of great joy. I want to be completely transparent with you here for a moment this morning. I am not afraid of death, but I confess that sometimes I have been anxious about dying. My maternal grandfather died of Lou Gehrig's disease. He was 67 years old. Uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, in case you don't know, is a disease where your, your body and your mind kind of separate. My grandfather was alert. He was, he was in touch with what was going on around him to the day he died. But he lost total control of his body. He lost complete muscular use of his muscles to the, to the extent that he couldn't even swallow. And that's, that's how he died. He choked, he choked to death. 
There, there are other diseases where your mind shuts down and your body goes on and is completely healthy. And I've always had this kind of feeling, you know, Lord, I'd just die about any other way except one of those two ways. I want to keep my body and mind in sync as long as I live, if at all possible. Well, I want you to know, this week, I am through with that. I don't have any anxiety about death, but I don't have any anxiety about dying anymore. Because I was convicted by David's words in this psalm this week. Dying is the very evil he's talking about here that he does not fear. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He doesn't say, though I walk through the valley of death, I will fear no evil. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So the valley is the experience of losing a baby or your loved one dying. The valley is your terminal diagnosis. The valley is your major surgery. The valley is your slow descent in the aging process. The valley is your disease. The valley is the life-threatening injury and recovery. And death? <laughs> Why, death is nothing but a shadow that you step into and out of into light on the other side. We shouldn't fear death, but neither should we fear dying. I've been convicted about that this week. And I wonder if this could be the day that you finally put your mortal life and your spiritual destiny in the hands of the good shepherd. Trust him to work all things together for your good, Romans 8, 28. And remember Romans 8, 38 and 39, neither death nor life nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And once you become a Christian, you don't fear death and dying because you've already died once. You died to sin. We've trusted Christ. We've been buried with Him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. So can you say with the psalmist this morning, I will fear no evil. I want you to notice it is a matter of the will. I will fear no evil. Can you make up your mind about that with respect to death and dying today? If so, you can walk out of here with confidence like you've never had before. Nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus. He's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And this is the confidence of the Good Shepherd's protection. Well, finally, there's the confidence of anticipation in verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In this life, we will experience goodness and mercy. Now, when David uses the word goodness, he means the good shepherd gives me what I don't deserve. Family, friends, freedom, food and shelter, health and well-being. And don't you sometimes just feel overwhelmed by God's goodness? Oh, I do. Oh, it just sweeps over me like a wave sometimes. I, I watch my granddaughter in the floor playing. I'm out raking leaves in the yard on a beautiful autumn day. I look up in the sky. I stand on the seashore and I watch the waves as they come in and 
go out and just overwhelmed by God's goodness. But David also uses the word mercy, and that means the good shepherd doesn't give me what I do deserve. God's wrath, God's condemnation because of my sins that put Jesus on the cross, His goodness and mercy. We have abundant life now because of His goodness to us. We have eternal life in the future, although we're undeserving, because we receive His mercy. And David does not use the word maybe. He doesn't say, maybe goodness and mercy will follow me all the days. No. Surely. You hear the confidence in that? Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So do you feel it today? Do you feel confidence welling up inside you? Do you have the confidence in life and death that's the result of having the Lord as your personal shepherd? John 10 verse 14, Jesus said, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Do you hear the confidence here? So are you living with this confidence in the Good Shepherd's provision, in the Good Shepherd's restoration, in the Good Shepherd's direction, in the Good Shepherd's protection, in the Good Shepherd's anticipation. Do you know Him as your Savior, your shepherd today? Or if you're one of His sheep, are you following close to the Good Shepherd today? Or are you out somewhere in the wilderness today?